This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, Ian and I had the privilege to speak to Raymond O'Connor, one of the co-hosts of the D&D podcast Running Off the Rails about all things D&D. We dive into the excitement of surprises at the table, the joy of running TTRPGs for new players, and the power of having your players be co-authors of your game's story. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we now stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. This is very exciting. Um, I think you're the first guest we've ever had so far that also does the whole podcast game. So a scene behind the scenes of what production looks like and what releasing looks like. So just so that our audience, just in case they don't know you or haven't checked out uh, Running Off the Rails, uh, what do you love most about D&D? Well, thank you so much for having me, first, <laughs> first and foremost. Um, what do I love most about D&D? <sighs> I love being surprised by my players. That's the, that's the best. And it's probably why I have a, a secret love for running for new players, because they haven't been indoctrinated yet into kind of like what you can and can't do. So the, the types of things that they'll come up with uh, that they want to try are always the most uh, entertaining for me. So I just ran Dungeons and Dragons for a new group of coworkers. I just joined a new team at uh, my job. And every month we try to do something fun together. It's become very hard to do that in the workplace because of world events. Uh, So they're often virtual. So I offered to run Dungeons and Dragons for all my coworkers. A handful of them said yes. And uh, the types of shenanigans that they were getting up to right off the get-go was was very entertaining to me. So if I had to pick one thing uh, on the fly, running for new players is is my favorite part of Dungeons & Dragons. Totally get what you're saying. Yeah, a lot of times new players don't have those preconceived notions of what D&D means. I mean, sometimes they do. Like if they've watched a lot of Critical Role, they might, that might be what they want going in. Uh, But it's also fun because to me, there's a lot of overlap between dungeon mastering and teaching because really all teaching is, is guiding someone through certain content and focusing their attention on certain details. And it's really interesting when you run for a lot of new players, because when you start running for veteran players, you can very quickly get an idea of the kinds of games and experiences they've had for good and for bad. So I just I remember this one game that we were playing where we were wanting to go through a door into a dungeon, but we took an hour to go through the door because there were two players you could tell had been, for lack of a better term, traumatized by being like 
caught in traps and stuff. So it was like, what material is the door frame made out of? And then describing how they're pressing against every single stone of the walls. And the dungeon master sitting there like, just open the door. And they just yeah, were so- Just go through. <laughs> yeah, they were so afraid of being caught. There's by plot on the other side, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they were so like afraid of being surprised themselves that yep. they lost that joy of surprise that you you were talking about. Um, so it's it's so interesting how it's all, almost a kind of pressure. When you have new players, you're teaching them what the expectations of the game are, which can be wildly different even game to game because some games are going to be more dungeon crawl. Some games are going to be more story. There's, uh, there's a lot of different shapes that uh, D&D can take. Absolutely. I mean, that story that you were just telling me makes me think of the reverse, which is I was running for a different batch of coworkers about two years ago. This game was actually in person. So maybe it was three years ago. Um, and they were on a pirate ship. The, the, the new players, my coworkers had discovered that there was something very suspicious about the captain of the ship. It wasn't a pirate ship. It was a merchant ship. Uh, <laughs> they were attacked by pirates. They found out that there was something very uh, suspicious about the captain of the ship. And one of my coworkers is like, I'm going to confront him. And I'm like, okay, sure. Uh, do you tell anyone that you're going to go confront him? He's like, no, <laughs> so he goes up alone, says, basically says to the captain, Hey, I know that you're up to no good. Uh, and I'm going to need to see the, the maps in your cabin that I know that you're hiding there. And the captain's like, sure come down to my cabin alone. <laughs> He's like, sure, I don't see anything wrong with this or, or fishy about this. Gets into the room alone with the captain, threatens him. He's, he's locked in this cabin alone with the, with the captain. And I'm like, okay, I, I have to kill this player now. I've foreshadowed over and over and over again that this is a bad idea. Of course, he casts Tasha's hideous laughter uh, the stat block was a bandit captain, so he didn't have a very good save against that spell. Knocks out the captain. He grabs the key and the like the valuables that he came to the cabin to get in the first place. Unlocks the door, runs out. Huge success. Like <laughs> couldn't have couldn't have gotten those precious materials more efficiently. But if you were playing with an experienced player, they would never put themselves in that situation. Yeah, it is really interesting because when you have new players, they don't have that fear yet. And I think a lot of times veteran players miss out on a lot of really cool story things because they have they, they grow attached to their character or attached to the story or attached to something that they have a lot of fear letting go of that. Um, it's what was really interesting is a few episodes back, uh, one of our people on Twitch had uh, brought up solo D&D. &D. So like just taking a module and running it through yourself, that's not what they were doing. That's what I've been doing. And one of the things I found is when I have the trust that I'm both the player and the dungeon master, I am willing to put my character in a lot more precarious positions because I trust also as the dungeon master that I'm not going to do anything that ruins the experience for myself. And it makes the rewarding surprises much more rewarding and it makes the failures or the threats that much more threatening so 
when I've built a character I think is awesome and they get a nat one, now it's that much worse because I put them in that situation too. And it's really interesting to be able to impart that love of failure and love of success. Cause when you hit both extremes, now the, the feeling is that much more raw. Yeah. Uh, just everything that you were talking about made me think of this awesome thing that exists out there. So people will write uh, one player D and D modules where they, they play very much like a, a choose your own adventure game uh, where you, you roll up a character at a specific level and then you just start turning pages through this adventure book. And it, it, it tells you to go to certain pages to, to look at certain stat blocks and stuff like that. The, the monsters have kind of a, oh my God, the monsters have kind of a, like an AI uh, that they follow. Um, so if you're interested in that in solo D&D, that's another way to play. I've tried that before. Uh, it, was, it was a really interesting afternoon, especially if you're a dungeon master that's interested in running D&D for, for maybe one of your friends that you think would be really interested in the hobby. Yeah, and I was just going to say, uh, you guys reminded me of like how so many players are, you know, veteran players or new players alike sometimes are, are like really like afraid to take those risks. I find that a lot of the most exciting surprises happen when the party is split. So like the, the golden, one of the golden rules of D and D is, you know, never split the party. But I, I think that is mostly applicable to combat uh, when it's a social encounter or an explorative encounter. Uh, I, I think that it's a lot more uh, exciting and interesting when you have the party split up and search for clues, so to speak. I think that's partially also why the Scooby-Doo franchise has been so successful because so many random things happen to each individual character when they're alone or in a pair. And, uh, and I think that, you know, we could all learn a lot from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's such an, an interesting point because in all of the literature and fiction that we try to emulate with Dungeons and Dragons, people split up and, and search for clues all the time. Um, and it's so dramatic because as you are seeing things happen to one group, uh, you, you know that the other group doesn't know about those things. So now all of a sudden you have this dramatic irony that you've injected into your games. And I know that a lot of Dungeon Masters, they'll they'll actually try to um, sequester the players away from each other such that they don't know what's going on. And that's that's really cool. And that's a really cool experience to have as a player. And it helps you role play more faithfully. But if you trust your players to be co-authors of the game, it can also be really interesting to have them be present and trust that they will role play faithfully. Because now that they know this they know what's happened in this other room as long as they don't use that information like for evil <laughs> you know they can actually use that information to make really interesting story choices and now all of a sudden maybe that they wouldn't have made if they didn't know what was going on in that other room yeah actually uh that's where i think um your choice of D D medium is really important like you know we play john and i we mostly play D D online these days and um 
you know, the there's like whisper functions or private text messages and things like that that you can send um, to a player to avoid uh, giving away the secrets too soon or something like that, especially when it comes to like player character secrets uh, that might not, you know, a, a player might not want revealed quite yet. I, I, I just started a campaign with um, with John and a few of uh, our friends and plenty of uh, the characters have a bunch of secrets and, and, and potential for character development that they don't want explored or revealed yet. And so, you know, using the whisper function is definitely a really useful tool on, on my end because of that. But on the other hand, you know, if when, when you're playing in person and you have a, you know, moment where it's for only one character or two characters, you know, when you pull the critical role uh, move of, you know, removing the extraneous players from the table, uh, I think it has, you know, I think it has pros and cons because, you know, for one, you're, you know, you're preserving the sanctity of the secrets that are being told or shared. Um, but for the other, it's just like, it's kind of, it's kind of like obvious as well that there's some secrets going on. So it's more when it, when it comes to like critical role, I, I think that it works well because of the show, but you know, I think other dungeon masters should be wary of, of how they approach that kind of tactic because of uh, certain feelings it can it can foster at the table uh, of suspicion or things like that. Um, in which case, you know, I think passing notes or or even texting, honestly, texting is probably the best way to do it these days because everybody's looking at their phone anyway. So, you know, you might as well send them like a secret character message through their phone and then they can choose when to say something about it or not. It's so interesting that you're you're kind of talking about like like group suspicion of of a character um because i i think there's this common wisdom in dungeons and dragons especially for new players that like you don't want player versus player right like that that's unilaterally bad um but i play in a a group where my like my permanent character has gone on a quest away from the group. There was a reason for them to hang behind. So I need a like a temporary fill-in character. So I created a goblin assassin named Backdagger. And like the group just doesn't trust my character <laughs> for good reason, right? Like, like I'm playing him in the most like suspicious way possible. Um, and I'm sending the DM note of like messages all the time where I'm like, Hey, I want to sneak away from the group while no one's paying attention. I just rolled a 23 stealth check. It's very easy to do when you're, when you have an assassin <laughs> um, and the group will be kind of like discussing something and then they'll go to include back dagger in the conversation and they'll, they'll go and they'll be like, I want to talk to back dagger. And then the DM is like, he's been gone for the last five minutes. And then like, I'm on screen and I'll just roll my chair away from the camera and into the into the shadows and i'm not going to do anything against the party i'm not going to bring any harm to the party i i know where those boundaries are but everybody else doesn't know <laughs> they, they, they think i could assassinate any one of them at any moment especially with that sweet assassin feature um so that suspense of we need to keep an eye on this guy this is Ray's temporary character he doesn't care if it results in us killing this character uh has been really fun 
uh, to, to play at the table. Yeah. So to backtrack just a little bit, um, because yep. <laughs> we were talking about like, why don't we split the party? And I mm. think uh, an important distinction is that D&D is inspired by a lot of works of literature, like you mentioned, Ray. Uh, and it's also a game structure so that you're, you're constantly negotiating as a DM between D&D, the thing that everyone gets to participate in from a game perspective, and D&D, the storytelling generator that can help you create excellent memories. And, you know, one of the, our taglines is you find your best self through gaming, because a mm. lot of times when you role play a character, you get to discover a lot of things about yourself. You make a decision for the character it ends up harming an NPC, you feel bad about yourself as a, as a person. <laughs> so you just, you get to uncover little layers of yourself by exploring it through, um, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, a safe space, a safe game environment. And with don't split the party a lot of times, like Ian said, it's mostly combat. Like even uh, that campaign Ian mentioned, you know, we got into our first big scrape. And what happened is two of the fighters ran into a cave, leaving the rogue and my bard to fend off two ogres. And it really, it was, it was pretty close to pretty serious. It was very serious damage that we were dealt. And part of the reason for that was the party got split. Our action economy got split. So I find that a lot of times the players are more willing to split the party if they know you're not going to punish them for splitting the party. And I question how many players are dissuaded from splitting the party because a DM sees them split the party and go, Oh, now's a chance for a back alley encounter. And honestly, a lot of times that stuff is less fun because let's say the DM ambushes your, the one split off character in an alley. Now the rest of the party just has to sit and watch for 45 minutes while one player plays by themselves. And just to be clear to, with that example that I just gave on Ian's game, that was player decisions. It was the map and the players decided to split off and move. So it wasn't like Ian had split it off intentionally. It just has to do with, uh, with how it ended up. I think you identified something really great there where as dungeon masters, we are a part of the greater D&D culture, especially when you're a new dungeon master. You see all these memes and videos about don't split the party, don't split the party, don't split the party, so that the first time that your players do it, um, they're kind of like, they're kind of implicitly asking you a question, right? They're like, are you going to punish us <laughs> for splitting the party? And as a dungeon master, I think the culture of our hobby has trained us, now's my chance. Now's here's my split the party chance to, to teach these players why you don't split the party. Um, and I think that would, that would might be my natural impulse before having this conversation. Um, but what I would challenge dungeon masters out there who are listening to do instead is, instead of the impulse of here's my chance to punish the players or show the players why you don't split the party instead have your trigger in your head be here's my chance for some really awesome hijinks what hijinks can i throw at my players don't don't do nothing because they split the party to try and gain their trust about splitting parties and stuff like that but throw interesting narrative twists in their direction and see how they deal with those things yeah and i'd actually take that a step further and say you know, and, and use exactly your words there. 
um, you know, what are we teaching the players whenever mm. they split the party? Right. So I think that there are times, like I said, when you can split the party and there are less, it's less likely to have dire consequences. And there are other times where it's pretty obvious that, you know, splitting the party uh, is, is going to lead to some, some issues. You know, you, if, if assuming you don't have like, um, I think psionic sorcerer has like this telepathy thing that's like for four miles or something. So, <laughs> you know, if you don't have any like way to communicate with each other, then, then it can be really dangerous really quickly. So it's, it, it's not like it's untrue or anything that that splitting the party is dangerous, but I think we should provide a variety of, of, you know, consequences that are both good and bad. Uh, when it comes to splitting the party, you know, just to show that it's not like you can just, you know, go into a dragon's lair and like split the party there and, you know, find out that there's like, this is like a nest of dragons, let's say. So there's multiple dragons in there. You can't just split the party in this situation. But at the same time, you know, if they're in a city, they're looking for people or they're looking for a contact or something like that. You know, there, there are opportunities for interesting role play with merchants, with guards, with shopkeepers, which I would argue are different than merchants. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then uh, you know, the, there's just opportunity. So I, I think that it, you, you have a really great point, you know, and I like I like hijinks. I don't like a lot of hijinks because I am a very um, narratively focused kind of guy. So I, I enjoy like logical story progression and stuff like that. But I, I, you know, I don't have a problem with my players like cracking jokes or whatever. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's good to provide uh, multiple different outcomes for a similar tactic, depending on the scenario that they're in. Well, and um, one of the other things, cause as a game structure, one of the things I think that DMs sometimes get lost in is the story that they lose awareness of who's participating and how much. So that's the danger of splitting the party is giving too much spotlight time to one player. I mean, unfortunately, I've been in sessions where this is so bad, pretty much if the other five players weren't there, it wouldn't have mattered because, you know, three quarters of the time was spent on delving into one character's one-on-one -on -one interaction or what they were doing while they were split off. Although players get to participate if it's entertaining. So I remember after one session feeling kind of bad because I felt like as the DM, I was talking too much, but it was one of the sessions I had gotten the most praise for because even though the players weren't making a lot of decisions and as the DM, I was self-conscious about them not having agency they were like, it was so entertaining that they felt like they were a part of it. So what's cool is that, especially if you're in that hijink mindset, or if you can keep it fun and keep it relevant, um, the, the players can feel engaged without necessarily making a lot of game decisions. I think that a technique you can reach for as a dungeon master, when you, you know that you want to give a player a big spotlight moment. Uh, maybe they need to have a conversation with their deity in uh, kind of like a, in a dream, right? That's going to probably be at least if it's important and not just like a little vision, it's probably going to be at least 20 minutes of, of you and that player. Uh, something that you should do is you should make the content that is being discussed relevant to the other players. So we're, we come back to dramatic irony. 
when the author cuts away to the villain's viewpoint, they, they don't just have like lunch with their, with their dad, right? They're like, they are planning all the evil stuff that they're going to do to the heroes of the story. And they're maybe having a conversation about how they're going to ruin their day. And the reason why we as readers are like, oh my God, this, this window is so valuable. We see this in Dune all the time, right? When we get up, when we get to see the Harkonnens planning their evil plots against the Atreides. The reason why we latch onto those chapters and we love those chapters so much is because this matters. These things that they're discussing, they're laying out kind of the map for at least the next few chapters of the book, maybe the rest of the book. Um, do that as a dungeon master. If your players are having a conversation with their deity, talk about the other players, like have the God maybe like mention one of the other players and like, you shouldn't trust so-and-so. The other player at the table is going to be like, what did you just say? And the dungeon master could be like, you're not there, <laughs> but they're engaged, right? If they're being discussed by a God and the person that they're traveling with, that player is glued into that scene. What's really difficult about that in D&D, &D, and I've experienced this too, is when players start to confuse their characters' feelings with their real-world feelings. So there's been plenty of times where I've had characters be suspicious of me or I've been suspicious of another player, and the line gets blurred and it becomes very emotional between my character is suspicious that you're talking about them behind their back. They want to know that. Now he starts listening in on a lot of conversations that can be a very uncomfortable thing for a lot of players. And so it can be a very interesting dance to negotiate between and just recognizing those different feelings and learning to process them. Again, that's why it's part of your best self is even if ideally it's your character's feelings and there's this perfect separation, in reality, there is no perfect separation. <laughs> that's good to know, though, because I you know, I've been, John and I have been talking about this a little bit in the last few podcast episodes where I'm like, I really want to have these like, these like bits of scenes where like before the quest starts or before the session starts where we like get to see what the villain in the shadows is doing. We don't know anything about them, um, but we get to like see some of their actions and, and, you know, it's very mysterious and, and like sets the, the tone basically for, yeah the quest. And, and I want to do that because some of my favorite authors do that when they're, when they're writing. And of course, you know, it's, it's hard to convert that kind of thing into D and D space because of metagaming and because you don't want to give away too many cards too soon, which is why I want to be very particular with the way I approach this. But, you know, at the same time, I think it would be a lot more immersive for my players uh, because I've seen it you know, like when we were talking about our short fiction episode, John, on uh, on DM Shower Thoughts, I, I've seen that it creates much higher immersion for the players, even if it's after the the session is concluded. Yeah. So uh, that short fiction episode, which is the latest one we recorded, it is out now on Spotify. Um, <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug. But uh, do it sometimes those supplementary tools can be very powerful because like Ray, you mentioned, you know, a vision could take like 20 minutes of game time. And I think one of the things to be very conscientious of as a dungeon master, no matter your skill level is how much time you have and how much proportion of time you're doing for each thing. So, and I've, this is something I've been very 
like really trying to tune in on. So a six hour game is a very different span of time than a one or a two hour game. So when you spend a two hour game and 20 minutes of a two hour game is a much bigger chunk of the player's perceived amount of time than 20 minutes out of a six hour game. So a lot of times the most immersive games I found were longer so that you had time to explore those uh, like one-on-one moments or in-between moments. Whereas for a two-hour game, sometimes what we'll do is we'll have, if two characters have an in-between conversation, we'll save that for kind of like a written chat in between sessions. So that that way, when we're all at the table, we're all participating, but we also have the chance to all read up on everything that happened. So that way, you know, the together time is spent playing the in-between time is spent on like the more development that gives context for decisions or character moments or whatever. I think that's such an important call out, which is pacing is, is arguably the most important skill that you can fine tune as a dungeon master and a more advanced version of this skill is varying your pacing based on the amount of time that you have. So you can think about it as if you have maybe two hours to play Dungeons and Dragons, that might be the equivalent of a short story, right? You have you have 10,000 words uh, to tell a story. You have two hours. Uh, if you have six hours to play Dungeons and Dragons, you have like a Sanderson length novel uh, or epic in which you have time to kind of like open up plot threads and then start closing plot threads. You can be opening up plot threads for three hours and then closing plot threads for another three hours. And uh, if you have like an hour to play Dungeons and Dragons, that's like a flash fiction piece, right? So, So really being aware of how much time you have and how you're going to deliver a feeling of catharsis to your players at the table so that they feel like they've made progress, right? Like, so if you're playing in a campaign, you probably have to open a chapter and close a chapter by the end of the session for the session to like really feel like you accomplished a chunk of the story, like a compartmentalized chunk of the story. I think that's something that players do and or dungeon masters do when they're first getting started is I have this module um, however, many, however much progress we make through this module in this three hour sitting is just how far we get. And we're going to pick up on that page, uh, the next time that we start playing, but you may have just opened three plot threads. Now you're expecting your players to keep all that information about those plot threads in their memory, show up to the table and pick up where you left off. First of all, that first session that you played probably isn't going to feel, you're not going to get that release, that cathartic release from closing like little units of plot um, that we get from like finishing books or finishing short stories. And then that second session isn't going to have the punch that you expected it to have where you're closing, where you would expect to have this cathartic release because the players don't even remember why the things that are happening are important. So. As you become a much more experienced dungeon master, these are the types of techniques that you can really start to kind of like put a magnifying glass over and zoom in on. Yeah, actually, um, just yesterday I had uh, the third session of a four-part one-shot, basically, 
uh, no, not not for your campaign, John, um, <laughs> uh, of a four part one shot where uh, there's like a lot of mystery elements going to the into the campaign. Uh, I'm trying my hand at mystery anyway. And basically, the it's a linear story like they're not going to, you know, wander off anywhere, honestly. And if they tried, it would probably not work out for them. But um that doesn't mean like I'm railroading them or whatever. It's just the clues that I'm presenting very clearly lead in one direction. It's not like they lead in multiple directions. But the thing is that they're looking at all these clues and we play every other week. So this is every there's two weeks in between each session. Um, each session, they am I mispronouncing that session? Um, <laughs> each 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 session. Wow. Uh, is, Cut. Um, yeah. <laughs> <Take> do. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the ch on each and then the s on session. It's throwing me off. Each session, uh, you know, we are finding various clues that are leading more and more towards like the final outcome. But a lot of these clues, and I didn't know this when I made them, uh, seem to have some red herrings attached to them. And like every single red herring is the one they think is the one is <laughs> the 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 clue, the point that is trying to be made. And I'm just like, not really sure how I messed it up like this, because it seems to me like they like, I mean, each red herring is unrelated to the next. So it's just kind of weird. Um, but my point being that we were talking about like them trying to rem remember plot threads and things like that from session to session. And uh, it's fortunate for me in this case that my one shot is a linear uh, story. So these these extra plot threads and stuff, even if they forgot about them the next session, it doesn't matter because because they, <laughs> they weren't going anywhere anyway. So it's like it's, it was just kind of funny. It reminded me of uh, of how this is is going so far. And a lesson that I have to take into account is that the players will often make up their own red herrings. I think that's such an interesting player behavior. I think the, the meme or the joke is that if you're trying to figure out what riddle you want to put in front of your players, you want to present them with a puzzle or a riddle, make sure that it's labeled as like second grade difficulty <laughs> because in the setting of Dungeons and Dragons, players just will not be able to figure it out. My favorite riddle to run that I've run for um, maybe like eight groups of new players now, uh, just for anybody who's listening out there and is looking for a riddle that <laughs> was successful or is play tested. Um, my players are in a room. The room has no doorway. They know that there is a way to go further. So they know that they're looking for some sort of way out of this room. Uh, the room has... A, a beam of sunlight that is coming from the top of the room and going into a little kind of like pedestal. And there are, there's a compartment in the pedestal for two uh, like prisms. And in the room, there are three prisms. There's a red prism, a yellow prism, and a blue prism. And the walls are covered in uh, imagery of like forests and plant life. Uh, so the, the solution to the puzzle is you need to put in the blue and yellow prism such that green is reflected out throughout the rest of the room and you're like lighting up the forest around the room. I've had some groups of like of coworkers, grown adults with children spend an hour not 
getting <laughs> the solution to this puzzle. And I think it's pretty simple, but every single time that I've run it, eventually people have gotten to the um, the solution because there's only so many combinations. Uh, and every single time they've been like, oh, and then and then they, they find a way out. Uh, so I found that to be a very successful color uh, riddle. Well, and to bring it back for a second, because you guys were mentioning pacing, um, time is a very relevant mm. part of feeling like you're getting stuff done. And so, like you just mentioned, Ray, like it took them an hour to get through the riddle. In the worst case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the things I discovered along the way is my games were a lot more satisfying. Let's say I had two hours to play. I would prep 45 minutes of content because the players will fill in, especially if you're taking the co-author method with the other hour and 15 minutes. Oh yeah. And it's my, my goal a lot of times when I prep a lot of it is more cutting out content than it is adding content because we have all these ideas as DMs we want to explore. And my goal as a DM is to close that loop by the end of the session. So if we open a loop, we close that loop or we open a loop so compelling, there's no way they're forgetting it by the next session, but never have more than one loop. Well, that's your cliffhanger, right? That's the thing that you put at the end of the chapter that and then, and then the chapter ends to get the reader to put down the book, but to remember to come back and pick up the book instead of just putting it on their shelf and forgetting about it. Yes, exactly. So uh, when it comes to things like, like uh, usually, for example, I don't like leaving a session off in the middle of a combat because it takes mm. them so long to retain that emotional continuity, remember where they're going to. Sometimes it has to happen. But usually I find things like that where let's say I have the players going to explore a ruin. If I'm running like say a weekly two hour session, which I really prefer not to run anymore, I go out of my way not to do that. Um, what, I'll, what I'll do is I'll prep like at most three rooms for them to explore in the whole ruin. The dungeon is very condensed so that that way I can keep their focus on one thing. Uh, I'll only do the longer dungeons if I've got a longer time to play. So mm-hmm. that way they're they're as soon as they open a loop, they close the loop. And if they open another loop, they close that loop. And what it does is it gets them to remember better and it keeps, it keeps them energized and engaged rather than having that kind of drawn out um, and also minimizing the amount of combats I have. So rather than a bunch of little combats, where because combat takes forever rolling initiative keeping track of initiative keeping track of damage um i find it so much easier to have one story meaningful combat at the end rather than a bunch of little combat sprinkled in between uh mostly just for bookkeeping just because it's a it's a whole bag of beans oh yeah yeah that's so interesting but I'm, i'm curious actually speaking of time that we've spent uh Do you remember what motivated you to become a DM in the first place? Yes. Discontent. (laughs) I remember it pretty clearly. Um, No, that, that, that was part of it. Um, I just remember, I remember watching a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and picking out uh, these like pieces that I thought were really special that I could see other people uh, experiencing 
and I, I kept thinking to myself, like, this seems so achievable. Um, not, not like a professional D and D experience, just, just a character arc, opening up a character arc and closing that character arc in a satisfying way. And I was having a really hard time finding a table of Dungeons and Dragons that felt like it was delivering on the return on investment that I was expected to put into the game. So if I'm going to spend six hours at this table, I expect this story to be memorable and like really cool and special, like a special memory. Uh, because like all things in life, uh, that's an opportunity cost. That's six hours I could have spent with my fiance or my family or my friends who I don't see often enough. Um, so I, I really felt like the time that I was putting into Dungeons and Dragons, I wasn't getting a meaningful return on investment. And then there was this other thread going on, which is that ever since I've been a little kid, I've loved to imagine stories. But whenever I've tried to write creatively, I'm just no good at it. I'm so bad at, at creative writing. Um, there are so many techniques that you need to learn and practice like endlessly every day to become a good writer. So all of these stories that I had imagined throughout my life were like bottled up inside me and they were just dying. I was, I was forgetting them before I could tell anybody about them. And Dungeons and Dragons was the perfect way, <laughs> running Dungeons and Dragons was the perfect way to start delivering these stories to people uh, in a way where they were going to get something out of that reciprocal relationship uh, in exchange. So first of all, it's a tale as old as time. I think oh, yeah. <laughs> in some ways, uh, a lot of DMs start. Usually I find there's some common answers. One is out of necessity. No one else would do it. Some is discontent. Even Matthew Mercer in a recent interview uh, <laughs> said that the reason he started, he's like, there's got to be more to it than this. It's got to, mm. like you said, it, there's got to be a better return on investment. Um, and it's bringing up creative writing. It's very interesting because you're also very much not the first person that's given that as an answer. Um, and just to bring it to a, a friend of mine uh, who's in the latest campaign I run, one of the things I noticed, uh, and I don't know if you, if I've told you this before, one of the things I noticed when we first started D&D Online is we would spend more time troubleshooting the tech than we would playing. And a lot of times the game would be interrupted. You get the one player trying to be funny. So they try to shout out over everybody, which would immediately cut everybody's audio. And then we'd have to stop everything, listen to their joke and go, ha for like the 30th time and then try to remember where we were at. So what Ian and I do is we almost do like a live play by post where the actual game is in roll 20s chat, which then gets saved. And then we still use our voice if we want to do an accent or we want to tell a joke, but there's almost two channels of communication, one for gameplay, one for out of game. And speaking of like one-on-one -on -one interactions, a lot of times players, if they're not interested in the one-on-one, -on -one, they'll just be having a side conversation. That's not interrupting that stream of thought. But uh, one of the players found that by doing it this way, her creative writing was sparked in a way she didn't believe. And because it was through the spontaneous act of gameplay, there was no judgment of this is, this is not good writing. So, but after the game, we edit down the chat into a, a 
comprehensive, well-looped story, like fulfilling that hero's journey story circle for each session. And so she started writing on her own creatively what her character was doing in between adventures. That doc just hit 110 pages. And it was because the spark of belief that she could do it was ignited by an environment that non-judgmentally allowed her to get the practice you were talking about. And she also remember this is the most engaged she's ever been in a D&D game and has the most developed character, which might lead to some <laughs> unhealthy attachments to her character. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know, it'd be cool. It'd be cool to try it if it's something you're interested in doing, because I believe that you're you can be a creative writer. And I also believe it's probably not as hard as you might think it is. And also it's probably harder than you think it is paradoxically at the same time. What becomes possible when you let go of your preconceived notions on what makes a great story? What becomes possible when we see tabletop role-playing as more than just a game and also as a vehicle for personal growth and development? What becomes possible when you let your characters live through your gameplay? This is the DM Shower Thoughts Podcast, a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network, available on iTunes and Spotify. What of something that I've actually wanted to do really badly for a long time is spotlight as an anti-hero. Uh, so someone who gets brought into the game and whose interests are aligned temporarily with the party, but the party knows is bad news and that the relationship cannot last. So Red Wizards of Thay are the perfect example of this type of thing where it's like everybody who's ever read anything forgotten realms knows that red wizards of day are bad news but in your session you have one show up and they also want to kill strad or they also want to take down tiamat and all of a sudden your players are interacting with this character that is saying very off color things uh, like talking about kind of like murder casually and the characters. I really, I really want to play that experience um, where like the play, the players know, Hey, this guy is not our friend. We should not treat this player as if um, their character is kind of like sacred in the way that ours are right. Like players will try to keep each other's character alive characters alive at all costs if you signal to the players that is not what this is like <laughs> this guy might not be on your side he might betray you i would love to see the story that unfolds there at the table and then you also have this weird dimension where the antagonistic character is not the dungeon master which is this very different feeling right you have this third you have this third author who is interested in the best story, but is very interested in different plot threads that are kind of getting forwarded. And the most unstable shape that you can have in a story is a triangle. So I love the idea of adding that instability for like just one session, just to like see what happens. It's definitely one of those characters that's a little bit tricky to pull off, just like it's hard to pull off an evil character as a whole, mostly because a lot of people's preconceived notions about what evil means is that it's just 
doesn't work in the party's dynamic. Mm. Like you, you are working against them or something like that. And even if you're not working against them, you know, overtly, you might be, you know, secretly working against them or something like that. And a lot of the advice that I see on playing an evil character is centered around that as well, that maybe the character is cooperating with the party, but they have their own goals. And when it's time, they will choose their goals over the party. But I think this is also a good thing to point out. Actually, two things I want to point out. One is that alignment is fluid. So, you know, your alignment will change depending on what your uh, actions are during the campaign. So your character, your evil character doesn't need to stay evil or your good character doesn't need to stay good. You know, it depends on what they choose to do. Um, And then the other thing is that it's just generally uh, difficult unless you are like really into characters um, like like antiheroes and and you're really into what they present in the story. I find that it's generally difficult to portray a character like that because we as players tend towards the more heroic side of things. So we we tend towards more of these like these good aligned actions at least in my experience, because that's how, you know, like it's a game of cooperation. It's a game of collaboration. So, so that naturally in my eyes leans towards the good alignment. And you see that in, uh, I think, I I forget which book it is. It's either the PHB or the DMG, but like Wizards of the Coast points out, like players generally tend towards more good deeds or good or heroic deeds. And you know, you have to consider that when creating an evil character. I think to your point, I think fourth edition explicitly expects that your players will just do good things because it's the right thing to do. And that in fifth edition, uh, we've seen kind of like a renaissance of a stronger focus on uh, the narrative unfolding at the table as opposed to um, the, the gameplay. I, I wanted to talk about alignment real quick because I didn't want it. I didn't want to blow past that because we've just been subject hopping like crazy, <laughs> which is great. All of all of this conversation has been really um, it's sparking my desire to like plan my next session of Dungeons and Dragons. But I think what you said about alignment being um, not just evil or good, right? It's it's a spectrum uh, is very interesting and. I think a useful way of using alignment in your game, because a lot of times it's, it does more harm than good to try to explicitly inject alignment into your game somehow, uh, like magic items that require a specific alignment are a pretty good example of this, is to uh, try not to think about evil as a broad term. Pick a specific, uh, a specific thing action verb um, and attribute evil and good to that in a very specific um, like zoomed in view. So the magic artifact black razor is a great example of an artifact that uses alignment in your games, even though it's one of the only artifacts or it is one of the only artifacts that uses alignment that doesn't um, specifically mention alignment. To use Black Razor, you need to kill someone with it like once every three days. Otherwise, it starts to like suck out your soul. That 
is so simple. It's so straightforward. Your character is either killing things or they're not killing things. And the sword doesn't care if those people are good or evil. From the sword's perspective, killing people is good. It is what it wants. Uh, do it or don't do it. And the conversation about whether those people are criminals or whether what they did was worth execution, are you doing this just because you want power? None of those considerations, which are useful to the story and the narrative, are being considered when we're talking about the mechanics of the game. So to give an example of an item that introduces a lot of problems, the cloak of the Magi has like a color. And it explicitly says that if you want to use a black cloak of the Magi, you need to be an evil character. It's like, what does that even mean? That's not useful, right? So like you could, what this does is it opens Pandora's box of like, you have this like arguably neutral character who's now trying to argue to the, their DM why their character is actually evil so that they can use this ultra powerful magic item. And then you as the DM, you're debating back to them. No, your character is not evil. They're good for this reason, this reason just get more specific about it. Um, killing someone is, is a pretty uh, obvious thing. You either killed them or you didn't kill them. So it's really easy to say good or evil. That's why Black Racer is such a good example. For Cloak of the Magi, you could um, say that if you ever, the cloak cares about the pursuit of knowledge above all else. If you ever pass up an opportunity to take a wizard's spellbook from them that you've encountered, the cloak will stop working for you because you missed an opportunity to gain knowledge. And the cloak doesn't care about whether or not you buy the spellbook from the wizard. It doesn't care about whether or not you kill them and take the book. It doesn't care about whether or not you steal the book. All it cares about is there was a book within 50 feet of me, a wizard spellbook, and we don't have it. So I don't know what to tell you, but I'm not working for you anymore. And rent. <laughs> nah, nah, it's that's good stuff. I'm curious, uh, what do you think your strengths are as a DM? Mm, that's a hard question. I think that my greatest strength is my pursuit of collaboration with my players. I think that I try to push the limits of what is considered to be like mainstream. D&D in my group. And the reason why uh, mainstream D&D is like common wisdom is because when you, when you go off that beaten path, alignment is a great example of this. You start to run into some like pretty obvious pitfalls, but you can navigate those pitfalls if you have open communication with your players. So a great example of, um, something that could have gone really poorly in my game that ended up being one of the most memorable, amazing story elements of my game that could have easily fallen apart without if I wasn't communicating with my players was my warlock um, or my, my friend Mark's warlock who's playing in my group. His patron um, gave him a magic item that if he did not do something about it, it was going to kill his character. It's a cursed magic item. It's giving him extreme power. Whenever he uses it, he can give up hit points, uh, permanent, permanently give up hit points to get a spell slot back of that level. For a warlock, that's pretty huge. 
in the context of one combat, giving up five permanent hit points to get a fifth level spell slot back is an awesome deal to make. But we've been playing this campaign for two years. And now all of a sudden, his 11th level warlock has like a max hit points of 15. And the ring now is making him to make saving throws whenever he's out of spell slots to like use the ring to get more spell slots back. And it's this awesome thing that shows up every once in a while where the suspense on these rolls to see if he can make the saving throw to not use his sick magic item that he was abusing when he first got it has been so suspenseful, so dramatic. But if I had not had a conversation with Mark about whether or not he was comfortable with the possibility that this magic item would kill his character that he's been playing as for the last two and a half years, this could have been a very bad thing at the table. But because he knew what the consequences were, as a player and a co-author of our campaign, he was making dramatic choices for his character, knowing that the result could be, depending on how the dice roll, that his character will die someday. And that's an example of like, don't just not do something that you think could be cool because it goes against common wisdom. Like, talk to your player and be like, this is the type of stuff that I want to happen in our story that we're running together over the next like year and a half. What do you think about this? Are you comfortable with the fact that you might lose your character? And that's that was a hard conversation. It took us... I think three different sittings to figure out what the right compromise was for us to introduce this element into the game. No, that is actually really awesome. That is, that is key. Um, to speak a little from personal experience, there was a point uh, when I was DMing, I was super uncomfortable introducing like homebrew rules or house rules because I found that my belief anyway, was my players are having a hard enough time with the raw if I start changing things they've gotten used to, how are they going to be able to remember? And are we going to spend more time debating rules rather than playing the game or doing what the rules were intended for, which is increase the immersion? So, you know, collaboration, I think sometimes gets misinterpreted as there's no conflict. But if you have a trusting relationship with your players, like uh, my conflict was not having the trust that they wouldn't argue with me. So, but then I went out on a limb and I asked them, I, I said, I want to do a whole bunch of house rules because I think it's going to make a better story. And then it ended up being the best campaign I've ever run. So I, I think that a lot of times collaboration isn't a lack of conflict, but it's really speaking to the open and honest communication between players. And sometimes honesty isn't a nice thing. Sometimes honesty is, you know, I don't want my character to die or I have this really cool story idea, but the player doesn't want to pursue it. That's open and honest communication. And even though it's, it's through the conflict that you reach like the highest good. Um, and, and I think that that's very powerful uh, to really have as like, like a core tenet of your, uh, your philosophy for DMing. It's very cool stuff. I think that's something that we, uh, a common theme that we've been kind of discussing around as we discuss individual parts of running Dungeons and Dragons is this idea of what is the ultimate goal that everyone at the table is pursuing. And 
that's going to be very different from table to table. Some players are pursuing uh, laughs. Like that's their ultimate goal. Like I want to have fun tonight at all costs. Uh, some DMs are pursuing an epic story that they're going to remember for the rest of the, and the players as well. Like the, the DM and the players are coalesced around this idea of the most important thing is the story. Some players, especially new players, I was this type of player the first time I played. My most important thing that I was pursuing was where I wanted my character to get to mechanically, right? Like I was a new player. I opened up that player handbook. I saw Paladin. I saw the level 20 capstone ability where you turn into an angel of, of destruction. And I didn't know that no one ever gets to level 20. So that was like my thing. Like I'm, I'm going to get to level 20 someday. The story is secondary. Um, this is why session zeros are the most important thing that you can do in Dungeons and Dragons. You pitch to the group that you want to play Dungeons and Dragons with what the ultimate pursuit is that everyone at the table needs to be aligned around. If that ultimate pursuit is the most awesome story possible, all of a sudden you'll have players who traditionally have never been okay with their character dying being okay with their character dying because as long as their character dies in a way that drives the story forward in an important way they're bought into that thing that everybody discussed session zero and they're like i just made the biggest contribution to the thing that is the most important thing that we're pursuing because my character is the only character who has died and now all of a sudden i've given this group of disjointed unaligned heroes, something to coalesce around. Um, you can get away with changing lots of rules if your players are aligned around what you're trying to do. If, if you as a DM, you have this vision for this like grim, dark world where magic is super occult and people and magic is outlawed. If you just start playing Dungeons and Dragons and the player rolls up with their wizard who they want to turn into an archmage uh, and go to wizard school, like that's not going to go well because it it goes against everything that is the point of the story that you're trying to tell. So you need to you need to say, hey guys, is this this is are you interested in this? This is the game of Dungeons and Dragons that I want to run for you. And if they say no, you got to respect that. That either means that you need to come up with something else that you would be willing to run that everyone can coalesce around, or that means, hey, no hard feelings. I totally get it. It's a little unfair of me for me to say that you're only allowed to play humans in this campaign. The player handbook has eight other races, but that's the story that I'm trying to figure out with this adventure that I want to run. We'll play Dungeons and Dragons on the next campaign. I'll, I'll, I'll bring in somebody else. Like it, it's no hard feelings. Like you're, you're not interested in this. There's nothing wrong with that. No, actually looking back, I think that was like the key thing which is we're going to have moments where we laugh. We're going to have moments of mechanics. But the other thing is also offering the escape hatch, which is I'll run something else for you. But for this game, this is what I'm going to run. And the other boundary I gave is I decide when the next session is. So <laughs> if it takes me two months to prep because you guys opened up six plot threads and I have to figure out the web, 
it takes two months, but when we play, it'll be like an eight hour session. So, and also you have to find the time for that on you because I'm going to run the game I want to run. And also it doesn't mean that those other elements get lost. It's again, what's the, what's the highest, like the highest ultimate goal that you're pursuing. So for Mm. me, it was meaningful storytelling. It wasn't necessarily something epic in scale or something like a specific tone. It was just storytelling that was meaningful. And the, the, there are going to be the laughing, the hijinks, that is a tool we may explore if it's appropriate to meaningful storytelling. But it even happened recently in a game where one of my, my players tried kind of a shenanigan, silly solution. And then another player went to add to it. And then eventually both of them, before I even had to step in, were like, nah, this is silly. It just didn't match the tone that they had spent 13 sessions building up to. They spent a year and a half building up to it. Would It wouldn't service what their goal was, which is what you just mentioned. Um, and even things that it's actually really funny. I recently folded in a new player because they asked for it for a game. Like they, they asked, and I told them it was meaningful storytelling. They said, awesome. And I said, as part of this, you're probably going to want to optimize your mechanics. And it's not because I want them to power game. And it's not because I want, I think that, you know, if you're not optimizing, you're not playing right. It's because I've been at tables where the story contribution was directly affected by, because of a lack of mechanics where I wanted to play a Witcher character and their nature was only a plus three. So it'd be like, make a nature roll. You don't know anything about this creature. I'm like, well, that, you know, has directly compromised the character concept in my head of being a master tracker. And I remember taking levels of Ranger because it's like, oh, now I have expertise on but then we never visited that terrain, so it didn't matter. So mm-hmm. it's it's one of those interesting things where my advice for the game I specifically run, optimize your character so that you're fulfilling the story concept that you want. And if you have a suboptimal character, they probably aren't going to contribute story-wise in the way that you find most meaningful. So, and it's funny because a lot of times I'm sure you've heard the opposite, which is like, ah, these min-maxers, they don't care about the story, you know? And that's true. There are some players that they'll, they'll build something really silly because it's mechanically powerful, but haven't thought through the lore or or the depth. I just don't find them to be mutually exclusive things. I think that they can help each other like fuse almost alchemically into something greater than their parts i'm laughing because um we have an episode an entire episode on our podcast running off the rails dedicated to this exact concept that um power gaming mechanically having an optimized character and delivering compelling story at the table are not mutually exclusive, right? This is not a line. This is a, this is two dimensions where you can both have a highly optimized character and be delivering awesome story. And those two things synergize. Uh, they are, they do not work against one another. I mean, if we're talking about critical role and we're looking at one of the most broken characters of all time, which is Laura Bailey's Jester. Um, there have been moments in that campaign. I'm thinking of one in particular, but there were multiple where she it was it was a saver suck spell where if the monster beat her saving throw DC, uh, it was going to ruin 
in a, what was the most dramatic thing that could possibly happen at the table. The, the thing that was best for the story would have been completely destroyed if the monster beat her spell save DC. So let's hope that she put as many points into that spell saving DC as possible so that this amazing, dramatically appropriate thing can happen at the table. Yeah, I, I obviously I 100% agree with everything you just said. I am totally on that page. All right. So uh, next question is just, what are you currently working on to level up your game? So it could be shoring up a weakness or it could be exploring a new medium. There's lots of ways this question could get answered. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it's, it's so interesting. We talked about this earlier. I came to Dungeons and Dragons uh, almost running away from creative writing. I've found that I have consumed uh, all of the meta <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons content on the internet uh, that exists. I've, I've watched the like the running the game series like twice, two times through at this point. Um, I've li- I listened to a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons podcasts, your guys' podcasts included, and I, I just didn't have content uh, to consume anymore that could help me think critically about improving. So what I started to do was I started to dive into creative writing content. Uh, Like this is how you write. This is how you creatively write. Um, The Brandon Sanderson lecture series on YouTube, I watched that maybe six months ago and they start talking about things like cliffhangers. They start talking about things like um, the mice quotient which is this idea that you should open plot threads in a specific order and then close them uh, almost like a stack. This idea that there are maybe like 20 different plots that have just been retold over and over and over again. And the way to deliver a compelling story is to um, not try and invent a new plot type, but to embrace a plot type and... Uh, put your specific twist on it. Um, this idea that there are like, um, I have a book right here. It's it's 45 master characters. There are 45 characters that, that appear over and over and over again in fiction. Um, and whenever you add a 46th character, whenever some author somewhere invents a 46th character, it's like, nope, turns out that's actually just character number 16. And it's just a worse version of character number 16. The Greek mythology is the perfect example of this. Over time, people just don't tell stories about the the Greek gods that are redundant because there's already a Greek god that um, symbolizes all of those character aspects. Um, And this opening this doorway, there's way more, this is how you become a successful writer content than there is, this is how you become a successful dungeon master content. So I'm never going to run out of stuff uh, to consume because I've gone down this path. So if you're a dungeon master and you're like, I've watched all the videos, I've consumed everything, there's nothing left for me to do. Well, first, listen to our podcast running off the rails anywhere where podcasts can be found. Um, Cause I, I selfishly and arrogantly think that it's actually really good. And I hope that, that you do too. Um, but watch the Brandon Sanderson lecture series uh, first. It's a great introduction 
uh, and it will give you an idea of, oh, what should I Google next in this quest to tell compelling stories at my table? So my last question is just where can people find you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Raymond O'Connor. Uh, we have our website runningofftherails.com, uh, where from that website, you can get links to our podcast, um, our blog post. I've published two pieces on the Dungeon Masters Guild um, that if you want access uh, to them, I will just send you a complimentary copy in exchange for a review. But I mean, there's no way for me to hold you to that. So you'll just get the free copy and you can just run away. Um, but I'm super interested in playtest feedback, critical feedback on those two products so I can work your feedback into revisions. Um, and then we are also... Uh, in partnership with Dragon Mind Podcast, we are releasing a Kickstarter. Uh, it's called Emery's Log of Legendary Eminences. And the idea is that legendary resistances sometimes can just not be all that fun at the table. Uh, and sometimes they work against telling an interesting story at the table instead of supporting an interesting story at the table. So we've given all of the most iconic monsters in the SRD, uh, their own passive ability, which we call a legendary eminence, which is up for as long as they have legendary resistances. So now when your wizard uh, tries to cast polymorph and they succeed and the dragon has to use one of its legendary resistances, all of a sudden the dragon is losing something that was very powerful and was maybe making it very difficult for your melee fighters to get close to the dragon and fight. Um, so it's this really interesting and compelling story element uh, that we hope <laughs> you'll be able to bring to your table. And uh, we're super excited to release that podcast. Um, we're just waiting on the Kickstarter video uh, to be finished, and then we will be releasing it. So please keep an eye out for that. And uh, if you do end up coming to our podcast, I'd be so appreciative. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmorepodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. I strive to defend Nui Zatalos and live up to my role as a spiritual leader. I journey to increase my knowledge of the cusp and cosmos. It has been prophesied that there is destiny in my blood. I fight for the honor of the name Steadyhand and the great kingdom of Firdirth. I wanted to find my true place in the world. I will protect my home and family at all costs. A young ruler's grasp for power threatens an already fractured world. Meet the heroes in Arc 2 of Advantage, a 5th edition D&D audio drama. Find us on all podcast apps.